The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Well, good morning again. It's good to see you once again back up here. And if you are in kindergarten or through fifth grade, you are now released to go to Children's Church, make your way to the back, and enjoy your time. And I would ask the rest of you to join me in Luke chapter 5, the passage that we just had read by Elder Peter, Luke chapter 5. Starting in verse 33. Give the children a moment here. Well, I don't know about you, but often restaurants for me are a meal. Are they not? I mean, you go to a restaurant because you want to enjoy a particular meal. For the longest time, for BJ's, it was their club sandwich. Now it's their deep dish pizza. I only go to BJ's for deep dish pizza, quite frankly, and you're not going to persuade me otherwise. With our kids, you, you know, you probably, you might find with, if you have kids or even as you grew up, you knew that it's, it's challenging to get kids to try new things. They're taste buds are sensitive, and it's just hard to get them to try new foods and often challenging for us to do that very thing. One of the things we require at home is you don't have to eat all of it, but you have to at least try it because it may turn out to be your favorite food, and that's happened a few times. We had Colton try sour cream, and now he wants sour cream on just about everything. I remember being a child, I couldn't stand sour cream, so I don't understand what's going on there, but, but you, you, know what this, you know what it's like, and um, a number of it's, it's when, you, when you get attached to a certain meal, it brings comfort. It's easy. You go to the restaurant, you know what to order. And it's hard to try new things. But if you think about it, there, I'm just, I don't know what in the world I would do without cheesecake. Had there not been a time when I tried cheesecake or Ethiopian food. If you've never tried Ethiopian food, it is wonderful. I don't know what I would do now without Ethiopian food. There came a time when I eventually had to give in and try something new. And that's an amusing those are amusing stories. It's an amusing analogy. It's actually quite serious when you consider this in the realm of spiritual things, in the realm of trying something new, in the realm of experiencing something new. And that's what we're going to talk specifically about today. And as it turns out, our conclusion won't be as nearly as amusing as our food analogy, but we'll still be along those same lines. Just a word of introduction. If you're following along on your bulletins, just a word of introduction I want to, to share. It's challenging to know exactly when this episode in verses 33 through 39 is occurring. Commentators seem split, and if you look at the parallel passages in Mark or Matthew 9, 14 through 17, and Mark 2, 18 through 22, they don't really seem to indicate one way or the other. I'm led to believe that this is happening at the feast with these tax collectors and um, sinners and this is when this conversation is happening, fortunately, the meaning and the significance of this passage is not really dependent upon when and where this was happening. So we're just going to get into the text and treat it on its own merits. I do believe that at the very least, Luke wants us to see this in connection with the previous passage, the one that Justin preached last week, verses 27 through 32. So we're going to treat it that way. We're going to make connections between the two passages. But in case you're wondering, there is some split among the commentators as to when this exactly happened. I tend to think it was during the feast, 
but the meaning of the text is not entirely dependent upon that. Just a little review from last week, if you uh, would join me in just looking briefly at verses 27 through 32. You remember that Levi drops everything, leaves everything, a tax collector, him being a tax collector, and just follows right after Jesus. And what happens when you come into a relationship with Jesus and you see him for who he really is, and you have now encountered the one through whom you can have the forgiveness of your sins and life everlasting, what do you do? Well, I think Justin showed us quite aptly last week that you throw a party. You throw a party for this Jesus, and you invite all your friends to come and meet this Jesus, and that's exactly what happens. However, the religious establishment was not so impressed. In fact, they were especially not impressed impressed with Jesus' lack of discernment. Don't you know who you are eating with and drinking with? They didn't like this situation. Verse 30, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? They questioned his discernment, and they questioned his piety or his holiness. If you were truly holy, Jesus, and if you were really a rabbi, you wouldn't be dining with the despicable, as it were. But Jesus' response to these religious leaders was to confront their notion of what true religion really was. What does true religion look like? What does true faith in God look like? And that theme is going to be carried on in today's passage. That is the question. What does righteousness look like? What is true religion? Jesus calls them implicitly to repent. He says, those, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus wasn't implying that they are righteous. What he was saying was that they assumed themselves to be righteous. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. But the tax collectors and the sinners, they knew that they were unrighteous, and so they were able to heed and hear and feel this call to repentance. And as they did, they received the joy of knowing Jesus, and the outcome is a throwing Jesus a party, rightly so. As, we see, as, we, as we'll see as we come to our passage today, however... We are introduced to a, group, uh, to a group that has further questions about righteous, what righteousness really entails. That's the issue in verses 33 and following. The question in verse 33 it has to do with what righteousness entails. What is true righteousness? The, the, the inquirers have their idea of what true righteousness is, what it really looks like, and Jesus is going to respond to that. The question is, They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. It's an interesting inquiry. Who's the they? Well, it's probably not the Pharisees, because that would be odd for them to refer to the disciples of the Pharisees. No, not completely um, uh, wrong to consider that, but it seems awkward, the disciples of the Pharisees, the Pharisees referring to If If this is happening at the feast, that it could be the scribes. But again, this is, who this is is not entirely, uh, our, our meaning of the passage is not entirely rel- uh, dependent upon who this is asking the question. What's significant is the question itself, as we'll, that will come out in the passage. The significance is in this inquiry that's being made. Jesus had just stated in the previous passage that he had not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, and now righteousness is precisely the issue at hand. Fasting and praying were 
the marks of devotion and piety and righteousness in contemporary Judaism. So the, if, if there's a situation where you perceive that there is a group of people not keeping with the traditional ways and, of piety and devotion to God, then you're going to ask about that, especially when this rabbi steps on the scene and begins to bring disciples after himself. But nevertheless, the, the reality was at this time, it was fasting and, and praying that were kind of the big marks of devotion, of, of piety, of, of righteousness in Israel. And in the Old Testament, the only fast that was commanded was the, during the Day of Atonement. But even so, fasting was a big deal in, in the, the Old Testament in that God would call his people to fast. Fasting was uh, an important part of their Jewish life. It was called for during times of mourning and mourning over sin and, and so on. But it was also abused in the Old Testament with, with Israel. It was often abused. In fact, it was often used as a replacement for obedience to God's word. And you see this especially, we've mentioned this passage before, you see it this vividly in Isaiah 58. You have a group of Jewish people oppressing the poor, oppressing their neighbor, actually acting in violence towards others, and yet going to the temple and holding fasts and these kinds of things and having worship, and, and God says, I can't stand that. When you replace obedience to my word with religion, with acts of piety, external acts of piety. So it was definitely abused in the Old Testament. And it's precisely why God would say in the Old Testament that he desired obedience rather than sacrifice. Far better to obey God's word than to offer a million sacrifices. Well, the Jews had fallen headlong into this pattern and so now they conceive of righteousness and devotion to God primarily in these terms of external devotion. And the Jewish tradition at Jesus' time specified three different kinds of fasts beyond what the Old Testament had prescribed. And it was known that the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Why Mondays and Thursdays? I don't know. But apparently those are the, the days that you would fast. And the implication here is you can just hear it. You could just, the implication is that Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself were slipping in their religious commitment because they seemed more interested in, indulge, in indulging their appetites than in worshiping God. And so you can see that. The, the, the question just seems to imply, hey, uh, we got folks over here who we know are really devoted to God, you know, like the Pharisees and maybe even some disciples of John, and, but, and, and they, they fast and they pray, but yours seem to be doing a lot of eating and drinking. What's that all about? Because that doesn't match our understanding of what righteousness really looks like. And so the problem appears to be with you, Jesus, and your ragtag bunch of disciples. Now, this question, I think, could have been genuine. There's, there's a good chance this could have been genuine. There was a lot of confusion in Israel as to what righteousness looks like. We know this. We know this already in the book of Luke, and we're going to see it a lot from this point on, that you have this group of religious leaders who focuses on the external at the expense of an internal, authentic relationship with God. That they are 
seeking after these religious works in order to establish their right standing with God, in order to appease a, a guilty conscience. And there's just a lot of a confusion in Israel because these were the leaders. You look to the religious leaders, show us what, what true religion looks like, and if they are all caught up in hypocrisy, then that's what's going to eventually make its way into the people. So this could have been a genuine question. Hey, I got a question. You got this kind of stuff going on over here, Jesus, and you got your stuff over here with your disciples. Can you, can you bring this together for me? I don't understand it. It could have also flowed from jealousy. And the reason I say that is because you can look in Galatians, if you take some time today and read Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about a time when he was with Titus, and he encountered some Jewish legalists who had been brought in secretly to spy out what he called the freedom that they had, freedom from the law, freedom no, to, to circumcise or not circumcise, freedom, freedom to eat certain things or not eat certain things, freedom in Christ, freedom from the restrictions of the law. They understood that all things had been fulfilled in Christ, and there was this freedom, and these Jewish legalists couldn't stand that, and so they sent spies in to check these things out. So it could be that this question is not as sincere. And there is a kind of jealousy here. Listen, the, the, the Pharisees, they, they have to set aside all these enjoyments that you guys get to. What's with that? You guys get to eat and drink, but they're over here fasting. Could be that, or it could be a little bit of both. If, we, if it is this second one, this is precisely, and we're going to see this as we make our way through this passage and also through other passages in Luke especially the following ones in, in chapter 6. This is precisely what legalism creates. This is what legalists are like. They categorize the enjoyment of legitimate pleasures as immature and unspiritual, but secretly they are jealous of the freedom that genuine Christians enjoy. That could be what's happening here. They are in bondage, and they maintain a strict religious regimen, and they wish they could freely enjoy God's gifts like these disciples who are with Jesus get to. So they criticize those guys who get to walk in freedom and joy. So this question could have originated from a legalistic jealousy, or it could have originated from genuine confusion about what's going on in Israel with regard to righteousness, or it could have been a little bit of both. Either way, Jesus responds to this question with a rhetorical question, which he's really good at doing. And I don't recommend you try this unless you really know what you're doing. And Jesus always knew what he was doing. He could just nail people when they ask him a question. He'd give them another question and just blow them to smithereens. You didn't know what to do. Well, you got to be really good at what you're doing in order to do that. Well, Jesus does this and he, he, he responds to their question with a rhetorical question that's intended to answer this initial inquiry, namely, the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples eat and drink, and he's going to respond this way. So what's the response to that inquiry? Jesus says, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus, I don't, I don't know if you heard what I just said, but my question was about fasting and praying and the Pharisees and your disciples eating and drinking. Jesus' answer is apt. It is right. He gets right to the point. The answer, the implied answer is an obvious no. No, you don't fast. Uh, the wedding guests, you don't make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. 
in Jewish, it was just known that Jewish weddings were a, a huge celebration, often a week long, and everyone was involved, and you had no choice but to celebrate and to eat and drink and celebrate with this new couple. And we just, Amy and I have just recently been to, to two weddings, the last two uh, weekends, and the, the last one, we weren't able to go to the reception, but the, the, la- the, week, the one last week we were able to, and that's exactly what you do at a reception. You feast. That's what you do. And it's, it's not, it doesn't honor the bride and the groom to, to say, oh, no, 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 I, I can't. I, I, I can't possibly. I'm on, a, I'm on a diet or whatever it might be. No, you might be on a diet, but you can eat at least some of the cake or something. You don't go on your fast during the wedding celebration. And that's Jesus' point. While the bridegroom is in their presence, they are not going to fast. In relating this, so remember, I, I believe Luke is wanting us to re- at least relate these two passages together. Relating this to the last passage, the implication is that the tax collectors and the sinners who were eating with Jesus, they get it. They're partying. They are celebrating. They are eating and they are drinking. The appropriate response to Jesus is faith, repentance from your self-righteousness, and then celebration. That's the appropriate response, and that's what's happening with the tax collectors and the sinners who are eating with Jesus. They had come into a relationship with Christ. Levi had come into a relationship with Christ. They had been forgiven of their sins, and what do you do? You eat and you drink to the glory of God. Just a side note. I like to give these side notes. Whenever you can defend and uphold the deity of, of Jesus, I like to be able to do that. In the New Old Testament, the Messiah is never really called a bridegroom, but you know who is? God. He's referred to as Israel's husband and Israel's lover, and so this is an implicit defense of or uh, articulation of Jesus's deity. Jesus's references, reference to himself as bridegroom is an implicit statement about his deity. Well, that was a bonus, and I'd like to just point those things out, but what, what's, what's going on here is that Jesus is going to respond to this question about righteousness in a way that utterly undermines the expectation of this person who is asking it. Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The tax collectors and sinners, they get it. You don't seem to get it. Now, Jesus is not against, this is important to point out, Jesus is not against fasting and praying in this passage. And how do we know that? Well, read on. Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So there we go. Jesus is not against fasting, per se, because he, he says that his disciples are going to do that. And in fact, they do do that in the book of Acts. You see them fasting while he is away from them. And he expects us, you can, you can read in Matthew, more of an expectation than it is a command. He expects that his disciples would fast at some point. And he, the way he talks about these things in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, he says, when you fast, don't let anyone know that you're fasting. The, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, would kind of do things to their face and make themselves look all kind of ruffled up, you know, and so you could look like, you could, you could really tell, boy, they are, they are fasting because they look terrible. Wow, brother. Well, you are so spiritual. You look terrible right now. Well, it's because I'm fasting. I've been fasting for the last 48 hours or whatever it is. And that's Jesus saying, don't do that. Don't let anybody know. Because this is between you and, you and the Lord, you and, you and your heavenly Father. 
So Jesus is not against fasting, and he's definitely not against praying. Luke seems to, uh, more than the uh, other Gospels, Luke, seems to, Luke really seems to model Jesus as the, the, the praying Lord, the praying Savior. He is always going away to pray, and then in Luke 11, he's going to teach his disciples to pray when they ask him. So Jesus is not against fasting, and he's not against praying. So the problem isn't with fasting or praying. The problem is if you are using these religious practices as hallmarks of religious devotion or to earn God's grace or to cover up for sin and disobedience. If that is what you're doing, you will not make use of fasting and prayer the right way. See, Jesus sees, this is, this is where Jesus is the master questioner. He's the master teacher because he sees something in this question that's wrong. He, he, he uncovers something in this question that indicates that there's something underlying this, this inquiry that's, that's rotten at the, at the center, and he needs to bring that out. That's why he answers the way he does. He answers them with this wedding analogy, this wedding illustration, in order to point out that there's something desperately wrong with your question. Something desperately wrong with the heart here that this question would come up and it needs to be answered, and I'm going to answer it this way. So Jesus says, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Obviously, no. It's a time for celebration and joy and feasting and eating and drinking. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days, but right now is not the right time. You don't seem to get it. Tax collectors and sinners get it, but you don't seem to... I want us to notice something really important here. Notice what drives and dictates and guides the religious devotion of a true disciple. What is it? Love for Christ. A true disciple knows when to feast and they know when to fast because they're not driven by some sort of external regimen that they have to bring themselves to do every day or every hour. They're driven by a love for the Lord. That's why Jesus says they're going to celebrate now and feast now, and there's going to be a time when they fast. They're going to feast while I'm here, and they're going to fast when I leave. The disciple is driven by, guided by, in their religious devotion, their quiet time, their praying, their reading of Scripture, their fasting, whatever it might be, not driven by legalism. They're driven by love for the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll eat while he's here, and they'll fast while he is, when he is taken away. But here's the deal. The Pharisees and the scribes maintain a rigorous routine, and boy, was their routine rigorous. They maintain a rigorous routine of religious practices because they depend on these things for their right standing with God. They depend on these things to soothe their guilty consciences. They have to keep a tight devotional schedule because they must compensate for their sinful and hypocritical hearts that don't really love God. What happens when a church loses that internal love for God? What happens when a church loses that gospel that promotes love for Christ? External religion explodes. It's why the Roman Catholic Church is the way it is today, external religion. As a result, these scribes and Pharisees are unable to discern, this is so important, they're unable to discern when is the right time to fast and when is the right time to feast. 
but not the disciples of Jesus. They know when. They're just driven by a simple love for Christ. They may not know a whole lot, but they know they love Jesus, so they know when to feast, they know when to fast. Well, Jesus is not finished with this question yet. He's got to continue in his answer. He's going to continue in his answer here. Look at verse 36. He's going to tell them a parable. What is a parable? I don't want to assume that we all know what a parable is. We might have some idea. A parable is simply this. It's an illustrative story that uses analogies and comparisons and images from everyday life in order to teach an important spiritual truth. That's all a parable is. And Jesus is going to use a parable that has two parts, or you could say two parables, in order to continue to answer this inquiry that we had at the beginning. Remember, the inquiry is, why is there this difference in how you conduct yourselves? Why is there this difference in what we would say righteousness? And he says, again, you just you have to stand back and go, Jesus, I, I, did you hear what he, he, he asked? But we, as soon as we dig in, we'll see why this answer is given. And he also told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Okay. I want us to see here, it's clear what he's doing. There's a contrast between new and old. Okay, that's, that's clear. And then the first illustration, we have a garment. And we have a new garment and an old garment. And Jesus is going to use a kind of universal truth here, you might say. No one in their right mind, and that's key, no one in their right mind is going to take a brand new garment that you just got from wherever you like to shop. No one is going to take that brand new pair of pants or dress or blouse or quarter zip sweater. I really like quarter zip sweaters. Um, No one's going to take that new garment home and say, hey, I got a great idea. I got a hole in this old garment, and I'm going to cut a piece out of this new garment and patch it onto this old garment. If you came over, you'd be like, why? What are you doing? I need need to talk to you, and we need to go someplace. Um, This is not a good situation, because no one in their right mind does that kind of thing. Rich or poor alike, even the exceedingly wealthy who have money to burn aren't going to do something so stupid and foolish. And then the same point is brought home in the the next image. Jesus uses wineskins to make a point. Now, wineskins in those days, they would take the animal and they would take the hair off and they would treat the skin itself so that it wouldn't flavor the contents and they'd use the neck of the animal as the, the, the place where you'd pour out the wine and they'd create these wineskins. And you needed new wineskins because you needed flexible material for when the wine fermented in the wineskin. And so nobody, again, nobody in their right mind is going to, if you want to preserve and keep that wine fresh and usable, you're not going to take that brand new wine and pour it into an old wineskin, which is brittle, which can expand, which is going to burst as soon as the fermenting process starts. Because if you do that, you ruin both the wine and the container that you're putting it in. If you, if you have two garments, you're not going to ruin one for the sake of the other because then you have nothing. You've ruined both. 
Jesus' point is that there's an appropriate way to treat the new garment. There's an appropriate way to treat the old garment, and destroying them both is not the answer. It is actually the very height of foolishness. Same with the wineskins. There's an appropriate way to handle the wineskin, the new wineskin, and there's there's an appropriate way to handle the new wine, and there's an appropriate way to handle the new wineskin. And destroying the wine and the old wineskin in order to preserve them does not make any sense. It is careless and it is wasteful, to say the least. And you have to step back and go, what does this have to do with the initial question? Remember, Jesus is answering, he's responding to this incredulity that this inquirer had here when he, about this, the disciples' lack of religious devotion. That's the issue. There just seems to be a lack of religious devotion, a lack of devotion for God because there's not eating and, or there's not fasting and prayer going on, there's eating and drinking. Luke wants us to see that this question entirely misses the point of Jesus' person and his ministry, and that there is a need for something radically new, spiritually speaking, in the life of Israel. Jesus has just called sinners to repentance in the previous passage, and Israel, by and large, is presently relying upon their religious practice in order to be in right standing with God. The question is righteousness, but they completely misunderstand what this righteousness is. They are seeking to gain their right standing with God through their religious practices. They're trying to cover up sin with rituals. So they are fooling themselves that they are righteous. And when we get to Luke 18, it's the Pharisee who is praying about fasting, who looks down on others and who trusts in himself that they were righteous. This is what is happening in Israel. Israel, by and large, is presently relying upon their religious practice in order to cover up for sin and to get right with God. Jesus' answer is not to indict prayer and fasting, but this question does reveal that there's something desperately wrong in Israel. They don't know what a relationship with God looks like. They just don't know. They think it looks like keeping a rigorous schedule of fasting and prayer. That's not necessarily at all what it looks like. The problem isn't fasting and prayer. The problem is relying upon those things with right, for right standing with God. The problem is reuse, using religious practice to compensate for an evil conscience rather than repenting from your sin and trusting in the grace of God. The problem is fasting and prayer with an unconverted heart. The problem is viewing fasting and prayer as the marks of repentance while neglecting infinitely more important marks of repentance, like love for God, repentance from actual sin, and love for neighbor. The problem is practicing these things for the forgiveness of your sins rather than from the forgiveness of your sins. That really is the issue. And and speaking of forgiveness of sins, I don't think we should miss Jesus' language here. Newness is the theme throughout these parables, isn't it? Newness, it just pervades these parables. There's There's new garments and there's new wine. There's something new that the Jews are missing. What is this newness? I don't think it's a stretch at all to see this as an allusion to or a connection to the new covenant. Remember, we must read this passage in the context of Luke, but we also must read this passage in the context of the Old, uh, the Old Testament. And the New Covenant 
is the driving expectation of the Old Testament. Now, it wasn't the driving expectation for the Jews, but that doesn't mean it wasn't the driving expectation of the Old Testament. It's what the Old Testament is pushing us towards, a new covenant. There was something wrong with the Old Covenant. What was it? And it's pressing us towards this new covenant. Just to remind us, just a brief word from Jeremiah 31. Jesus, uh, the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them, out of the hand, uh, took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 is going to make very similar promises. God's going to create a new heart. He's going to take out a heart of stone and put in a new heart of flesh. It's going to be new. He's going to put his spirit within them. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. He will put his law inside of them, not merely written on tablets of stone, but now written on the human heart. And they will, at the end of verse 27 in Ezekiel says, and they will be careful to obey my rules. The new covenant would change the heart of the worshiper to love God love his word, and provide complete and final atonement for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the new covenant would do. And here's what's important for our message today. Here's what's important for this inquire in verse 33, whoever they were. And this new, this, this new way of Christ could not be mixed with the old covenant religion. Now, that's not to indict the old covenant. That's not to indict the Old Covenant. The problem wasn't with God's law. We know that. Paul says that. Paul says God's law is good and it's right and it's holy. There's nothing wrong with God's law, nothing wrong with the, new, the, the Old Covenant. The problem was with people's sinful hearts. We need a new covenant that would do something about the sinful hearts. And that's what the New Covenant provides. Nor did Jesus mean that Christianity was new in the sense that it was utterly disconnected from the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Christ fulfills everything the Old Covenant foreshadows. Nevertheless, the gospel of Christ and the newness of the New Covenant couldn't be mixed with the Old Covenant in any way. Contemporary Judaism, although it was related to the Old Testament, could not be mixed with the gospel or else both the worshiper and the gospel would be damaged. See, trying to practice religious exercises without a converted heart ruins the worshiper and besmirches the gospel. You can't bring your old religion to Christ. You can't. You must leave behind any reliance upon your past religion and come fully to Christ and embrace his righteousness. You must be like Paul who counted everything in his past life. This is what's amazing to me in in Philippians 3. Paul is looking at religious attainment in his past life. Attainment from a human standard is quite significant, and he counts that as worse than nothing. He counts it as actually a liability as, as filth. 
is something that if you hold on to, you can't embrace the righteousness of Christ. Jesus here is calling us to come to something new, and you cannot mix the old and the new. If you do, you will ruin both. You can't come to Christ holding on to past religious attainments, no matter what they were. No matter what they were. The Jews couldn't attempt to join Christ with their present approach to their Jewish religion. They couldn't tack on Jesus to what they are presently doing. That's what the Judaizers wanted to do later on, as we see in Paul and in Galatians, like we mentioned earlier. Everything has to change. The new garments had to be kept intact, and the new wine of the gospel had to be put into new wineskins. And just a note of application here. This is one of the reasons we take membership so seriously here at Creekside. Membership is a good thing. It protects you and protects the church. We want to maintain the newness of the new covenant and not allow for people who are unconverted to think they are Christians just because they come to church and sing and give money. That's to do you an injustice. And that is to do the church an injustice. Fasting, prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper, serving in the church, worship, quiet times, giving, etc. All good things, but they come after salvation. They come after salvation, not in order to get salvation. And if you think that's only for those who are presently in an unconverted state, we Christians need to always be reminded of that. We are always recovering legalists. We always need to have our minds refreshed by the, this good news of the gospel. But it's not good for the church and it's not good for that unconverted person to lead them to believe that they are recipient of the new covenant while they are still caught in old, dead religion. It's not good for anybody. That's why we take membership seriously here. It's where you're good. It's because we love you. Now, the question posed at the beginning of this passage indicated that the Jews did not grasp this necessity to turn from self-righteousness and come into a new relationship with God. They thought they had their relationship with God due to their election, due to their being chosen by God, and due to their many religious activities. But the reality was, is they were stuck. They were, as the title of today's message says, they were actually addicted to dead religion. They were addicted. And where do I get that? I get that actually from the last verse of the passage. Really, this is probably best seen as a warning. Verse 39, it says, And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. That brings us back to our original, slightly humorous analogy at the beginning of the message, doesn't it? You've got your comfortable food, meal you always eat. No need to try anything new. No need to try anything new. The point of the parable is that people must fully embrace the newness of Christ and the gospel and not attempt to blend the new covenant with contemporary Judaism or with their self-righteous attempt at earning God's favor. But here's the deal. It is exceedingly difficult to get people to set aside the wine that they're comfortable with and get them to try a new and better wine. Once someone is satisfied with their Safeway 599 special, it is really hard to get them to try a new deep cellar Cabernet. 
the spiritual taste has been deadened by the self-righteous, their self-righteous religion, and they had no desire for the grace of Christ in the new covenant. They were satisfied with themselves, ultimately. They were satisfied with themselves, with their self-created religious activity. They wanted to control their religion, and so they did, and they were satisfied with it. See, when you drink deeply of external religion, when you indulge yourself in legalism, when you neglect the heart, when you find pleasure in self-righteousness, then you will have no appetite for Christ and his new covenant. You won't be able to hunger and thirst after true righteousness. You are addicted to dead religion. And addictions require intervention. You must have someone to bring in this gospel and feed it to you by God's grace. You know, that's why the hardest person to reach is not the overt sinner. It's a religious person. It's a religious Muslim. It's a religious Jehovah's Witness. It's the religious Mormon. Why? Because they're convinced they're righteous. Because they've been tasting and drinking of legalism for so long that they can't imagine tasting anything else that would taste any better. They are fully satisfied. It is so difficult to reach that person. And that's what Jesus is saying. No one after drinking the old wine desires new. For the the old is good enough. Self-righteousness is a deadly poison, but it tastes pretty good. If you haven't sipped the wine of the free and heart-transforming uh, grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel, it's free. It reaches the heart. It releases you from the bondage to earn your way with God. It provides you complete forgiveness of sins when you repent and believe. There's nothing left to do to secure your right standing with God. Christ has paid for it and earned it all upon the cross and in his resurrection. And it shatters our self-wrought religion. As we'll see, um, as we'll see in this passage and in following passages, the legalist is truly in bondage. Truly in bondage. We see in, in verse 34 that they have no love for the bridegroom. This is, this, these, these things characterize the legalist. They have no love for the bridegroom. Verse 33, they trust in their religious activity. Verse 31 or 32, they can't hear Christ's gracious call to repentance. Verse 33, they don't enjoy earthly life the way it was intended for them to be enjoyed because they think righteousness is found in rejecting God's good gifts. They are jealous of other Christians' freedom. They don't rightly apply God's word. We'll see that in chapter 6. And they don't care about the needs for others. And we'll also see that in chapter 6. Truly the legalist is in bondage. And you know what they need? You know what that legalist needs? They need the heart-transforming truth of the gospel. There's no need anymore for you to earn your way with, with God, to try to secure your righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. And if you are someone here today who are, you're, you're a believer and you feel like some of these weeds of legalism have grown up in your life and they need to be put to death and cut down and killed at the root, you know what does that? It's the same remedy for you as it is for the unbeliever. 
It's the gospel of Jesus Christ continually bringing that truth to our minds that Jesus Christ, he is our righteousness. I don't increase my righteousness through my fasting and prayer or any type of religious devotion. Christ is my righteousness. And when we see that more and more and more, then we will truly be devoted to him and we will conduct ourselves in a way that is pleasing to him and and good for us, really. What the Jews needed is what many people need today. They need to forsake their past religious accomplishments and come to God through the new way of the gospel. They need the refreshment and the relief of the good news of the new covenant. In this way, God provides the forgiveness of all of our sins in the new covenant through the death of Christ. He raises you to new life In the resurrection of Christ, he gives you a new heart to love God and his word. And he does all of this entirely apart from any work you have done or ever will do. So come to Jesus in the new covenant gospel for for the forgiveness of your sins and for a new heart. Repent from your sin and your self-righteousness and believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you will be ready to celebrate with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good word about the newness that Christ brings. God, would you please take us off our own righteousness, our own self-righteousness, our own clinging to our works, and bring us to Christ to behold and embrace his righteousness. God, I pray for anyone here today that is not converted because they are merely religious, that you would change and transform their hearts. Let them see Jesus in the goodness of of what he is and who he is and what he has done. And I pray for those Christians who are struggling with some form of legalism, that you'd help us to put those things to death for our joy and for your glory and for the good of this church. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.